I don't know if you've ever watched The Great British Bake Off, but it has become a favorite of mine in the past few weeks. It's charming and quirky and emulates a wholesome trend that I wish I saw more of in television. It's also quintessentially British and captures their obsession with the weather. On a few episodes, usually when they're making something that requires proofing, they talk about how hot it gets during a British summer. These are not ideal bread-making conditions, they all exclaim. Then the host will announce that it is a sweltering 27 degrees. That's Celsius, obviously. Converted to Fahrenheit, that number is approximately 80 degrees. That's right. For the lovely amateur bakers of GBBO, 80 degrees is sweltering. It adds to the charm as a Florida summer day that's cooler than the mid-90s is essentially a miracle. We are used to actual sweltering heat. I savor the humor of those delightful Brits melting on what is normally a lovely day on our peninsula. That is, until weeks like these come around. On the day of writing this, the low tonight will be 49 degrees Fahrenheit. Last night and the night before, we're also in the 40s, and meteorologists predict that the coming week or so will be filled with similar days of afternoons in the 60s and nights in the 40s. That's a cold week for us. Driving the streets, you can see that it's affecting Floridians in a very outward way. For us, it's just instinct to bundle up as warm as possible the second it goes below 50. We all mock it, but if you're a native Floridian, you are a part of it. I am no exception to this. Last Tuesday night, I decided to go for a run. So naturally, I threw on my normal gym clothes, as well as my heavily insulated stuffed parka, zipped all the way up, and a thick wool beanie. The following day, I saw not one, but two individuals wearing earmuffs. Earmuffs. I've got a thermal jacket, a parka, a denim jacket, a dozen sweaters, a hundred sweatshirts, and couple hooded jackets. All this for just one or two months of 60 degrees or lower weather. And even those months have very warm afternoons. But for those of you who dream of chill Florida days like me and have a closet stocked and ready for the possibility of that day's arrival, the following stories are for you. Because in case you hadn't heard, it snowed here. And every time it did, it was like the impossible coming true. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. This week, snowy days, frosty Florida, all that. Snow in the state is almost exclusive to areas in the north, obviously, usually sticking to places like Jacksonville, the Panhandle, and anywhere defined as North Florida. The National Weather Service tracks these sorts of things, and as far as we know, there has never been snow in the Keys and snow anywhere in Central Florida is extraordinarily rare. It's also difficult to track how far back we've been recording snow in the state, as most everything before the turn of the century is based on independent research and whatever newspapers were writing at the time. One book, published in 1821, holds an indication of when our first recorded snow in the state occurred. The book is called, and I'm not joking, Sketches, Historical and Topographical of the Floridas, more particularly of East Florida, by James Grant Forbes. East Florida is in reference to what most of Florida was called when we were a British colony during the 18th century. See, we were given to the British at the end of the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. They split what is now Florida into two separate colonies, West and East Florida, with the Apalachicola River and the Panhandle serving as the border between the two. Britain came in, changed our names, and 21 years later, kicked us back to Spain in 1784. It was right after we came to be a British colony in 1765 that James Grant Forbes, in his very long-titled book, records our oldest bit of snow. 
The account is brief. Quote, In 1765, there was a white frost on the 19th of December, and in 1765, a fall of snow in the northern part of the province, which was of short duration and of no material determinant to the agricultural interests. Unquote. A brief account for a brief snowstorm. As for the rest of the 19th century, a few sites indicate some of the minor snow events, including one document called the Monthly Weather Review that holds lots of information. Most of that information is in an article titled, quote, Climatology of Jacksonville, Florida and Vicinity. It is dated for publication on January 31st, 1908. It is a comically precise listing of all of the precipitation and temperature and weather events for the city of Jacksonville for every month of the year, from 1829 to 1907. It's the sort of extensive analog data collection that shocks the digitally oriented mind. Nowadays, information like that could just sit in a computer bank, but this is a complicated graph with every little number in it. It does provide a significant piece of information about temperature, however. Specifically, during this almost 80-year period, the highest Fahrenheit temperature in the month of December was 35. The low? 8 degrees Fahrenheit in December of 1835. This, you'll remember, was the first great freeze that nearly destroyed the citrus industry in Florida. The major freezes later, in 1894 and 1895, are noted in this as well, saying that after the freezes, quote, all fruit trees were killed to the ground, unquote. For more on that, check out my two-part series about the Indian River Fruit Company. I hope you don't mind that little self-plug. The document goes on to detail different accounts of various weather conditions like tornadoes and hurricanes, massive freezes, the odd earthquake, and of course, snow and sleet. The details here, however, are fleeting and are about as close as we'll get to seeing how much snow hit us before the turn of the century. It's very brief, literally. February 28th of 1855 reads as the following, quote, a few flakes of snow fell, unquote. No time, no further details, no temperature, just that one sentence. A few flakes of snow fell. That's it. I am grateful that some scientists noted all of this detail over a hundred years ago, but a smidge more information would be much appreciated. Occasionally, the document will have something heavily observed, like on Valentine's Day, 1895, when the document reads, quote, At 6.22 p.m., light sleep began to fall, continuing about five minutes, when it turned to snow. Snow ended in five minutes. Light snow began at 7.20 p.m. and ended at 8 p.m. Unquote. It's kind of beautiful how much they were watching and taking notes on that night. It's so much more beautiful, especially when you compare it to January 29th, 1868, which reads, Light sleep fell during the night. That is some invigorating information, folks. One day was particularly magic, however, and the record notes it in extreme detail. The entire country, mostly in the south, was facing a freeze over a couple of days. It snowed here in Florida on the night of February 12, 1899, and it snowed a lot. By the morning of the 13th, the snow had stopped. The effects, however, remained. In some parts of the state, there was snow still on the ground, such as two inches in Jacksonville. One other such place was Tallahassee, our state capital. It had reached minus 2 degrees Fahrenheit overnight, which is still our state record and the only time we have ever gone below zero. Miami went below 30 degrees for the first time in history. 
Tallahassee had an inch of snow, its third highest snow record, right behind those freezes in 1895. For northern cities, big snowy days like this are a burden, a challenge to overcome. For the residents of Tallahassee, on this record-setting day, one thing was on their mind. Snowballs. According to several accounts found in the Tallahassee Democrat, kids were thrilled to be out of school so that they could play and throw snowballs. One resident said that nearly all of the Capitol building's windows were shattered by snowballs that day, and it wasn't just the kids. One picture, probably the most charming photo I've seen in years, was taken on the morning of on the steps of the Capitol building. A group of what appears to be five adult individuals, three men, one woman, and a fifth person obscured in the background, are just destroying each other with snowballs. I'm not kidding. One man has his back to us because he is hurling a snowball at his friend as hard as he can, and his friend is flinching as this massive explosion of snow erupts around him. To the left of the image is another man, his arm in mid-throw with this huge smile on his face as he's about to deck the first guy. Behind him, a woman seemingly dodging an incoming attack. Partially obscured, someone is on their knees, building up a projectile. The joy in this image is stunning, and despite its cold subject, it just radiates warmth. Truly, Floridians grinning from a snowy landscape is a joy every single time. Almost 80 years after this major snowstorm hit us, it hit again, but much, much further south. I mean much, much further south, and the pictures here are spectacular. Tampa, Orlando, and Miami all experienced freezing weather, icy conditions, and like a miracle, snow. There are photos from Orlando, tons of them showing kids writing on windshields. One is of a little kid in Longwood, just a five minute drive from my own hometown and her snowman. My favorite is of a boy in Altamont Springs, my hometown, seemingly screaming at the sky as he waits for snow to fall on his tongue. Down in Miami, there wasn't even enough to do that much. It melted the second it hit the ground, but it was still considered the biggest weather event up to that point. My favorite thing about this is that there is a website detailing all of this, specifically in Tampa, and its title is, quote-unquote, Blizzard of 1977. This blizzard brought, and I'm not kidding, this is the real number, two-tenths of an inch of snow. I'm not kidding, one-fifth of an inch. And they called that a blizzard. There will never be anything quite like that first snow in Central Florida, or those magic freezes near the turn of the century that turned the city of Tallahassee into a snowball war zone for young and old alike. It's startling how the frost and snow can change the state just that quickly, and occasionally, for the worst. Many historians note that several freezes in the 1980s, specifically the Christmas Day freeze in 1989, led to the Florida we know today, and not in a good way. Lake County, northeast of Orlando, lost 117,000 acres of citrus groves due to the frost. This land was sold to developers, and the county doubled in population in 20 years. It was devastating to Lake County farmers, who had previously been the number two developers of citrus in the state. But Central Florida was becoming a genuine metro, and residents needed all the space they could get. It's a grim story compared to those magical days 90 years prior on the Capitol steps. We all know how easily we are impacted by our hot and humid weather, but we rarely consider the snow or the cold or the chill or the frost. It's so rare, such an unprecedented threat, and we never see it coming. 
It's beyond our comprehension to see snow on palm trees landing on sandy beaches, peppering our coral-colored strip malls. Though that cold can be out of character, or at least seem out of character, by some definition it's actually supremely in character. Because it's unpredictable. It's beyond our limits, and it reminds us that no matter how certain we are, there will always be things we can never see coming. The residents of Jacksonville saw how true that was 160 years ago on August 28, 1859. That evening, a pink-tinted red sensation appeared in the sky. Now, if you've seen a vibrant Florida sunset, I'm sure you've seen something similar with beautiful, saturated light flashing along the horizon, but our friends at the Monthly Weather Review saw something else. The Aurora Borealis. This phenomenon is typically seen closer to the poles, and it is caused by charged particles from the sun colliding with gases inside of our atmosphere. Red auroras, like the ones seen over Florida, are due to high-altitude oxygen reacting with the sun's particles. They were seen again four days later on September 2nd, and the account reads as the following, quote, Brilliant aurora during that evening and night, the entire heavens illumined. Many amusing incidents are told of how the more ignorant inhabitants imagined the end of the world was at hand, unquote. The lights were seen several more times, and as the report notes, happened with some frequency from 1870 to 1877, happening a dozen or so more times at various dates throughout the years. On November 7, 1882, it was seen for 50 minutes, ending just after 9 p.m. It was a pale red tint and filled much of the sky. The report notes that this spectacular show was the last time that the Aurora Borealis was seen. Then, a solar storm struck the 48 states in March of 1989. States all over the country reported seeing Aurora Borealis, as well as the residents of Broward County in South Florida. Over a hundred years later, the lights came back. But those lights were part of a greater effect happening countrywide. Back in the 19th century, those lights weren't part of any storm. They were ours, and ours alone, those pink lights illuminating the dome above us. And thanks to our friends up in Jacksonville over a century ago, we know that it happened, along with those scattered snows and sleets and frosts. Unusual things can happen, whether it's snow fit for a snowball fight or a light show that startles the less informed. So when you're bundling up for our 40-degree nights over the coming weeks, dream bigger and wait for the return of snow. Any day, any winter, it could come. And if we're lucky, and I mean really, really lucky, maybe the Aurora Borealis will return and we can all marvel at the impossible things that can happen. Thank you all so much for listening to Wait 5 Minutes. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. It was so much fun to make, and I'm very, very excited for the episodes coming up. Next week, we're going to do a profile about the grandmother of modern Florida herself, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. We're going to talk about her books. We're going to talk about her history. We're going to talk about the woman herself. I hope that you tune in. If you enjoyed this episode and have been enjoying our episodes so far, it would really mean a lot if you left a review, subscribed, or told a friend. Leaving a review is honestly a great way for people who have not heard of the show to find it. It really, really helps, and it would mean a lot. If you have a topic suggestion or an idea or something you just want to hear talked about on the show, you can send me an email at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram, at wait5minutespodcast. 
all of the songs in this episode are from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles of those songs alongside all of the sources used for the research in the description below. I hope you enjoyed our Tallahassee Tuesday. We will be doing those every first and third Tuesday of the month going forward. Until next Friday when we talk about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, I hope that you have a great week. Be good to yourself. Be good to each other. And please drink more water. Oh, and stay warm. Have a great weekend. Thank you.